Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. This is Marianne Sullivan. Thank you for joining us this week. Marianne's guest this week is, once again, Aisha Akhtar, who will be talking about the organization she is heading up, the Center for Contemporary Sciences, and about the progress happening, both in the current day as well as the progress projected for the future, regarding getting animals out of laboratories. Just as in the food industry, the possibilities are shifting for animals in labs because of enormous scientific developments. And as Aisha and Marianne will discuss, we could be poised for real lasting change. Yeah, this is an area in which it's not something we cover all the time. And so much change is happening. And, you know, it's not even that it's happening yet, though there are things happening already, but the possibilities are so enormous. I'm excited about it. On this week's Flock bonus segment, I'll be continuing that conversation with Aisha. As always, if you're a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this episode goes up. And you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. If you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can always join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Oh, and also, if you're a member of the Flock, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on, you guessed it, the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern or 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, where we focus on how to be better activists and how to take care of ourselves. And we also speak to some really inspiring guests, including former guests on the podcast that the Flock specifically requested join us. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And you can also set up one-on-ones with me too. I'm really enjoying those. So if you want to meet with me and you are a member of the Flock, email Jen to organize it. It's jen at ourhenhouse.org. I do one-on-ones with you all the time. Do you enjoy them? Let's move on. Uh, Let's not go into that. (laughs) Okay. So... I'm moving, so you have to be nice to me. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> obvious that you're moving since, yeah, your personality has deteriorated dramatically and your house oh is your house is almost empty. You're doing so much well, packing. I just do not think my house is almost empty. I think it's it's absurd the amount of things I have. I'm a true maximalist, apparently. And I do want to point out that I don't actually buy things very often. I just seem to have collected a lot of things throughout the years. You've been known to buy a thing or two. I don't, I'm not really money, but not really. No, you're not a, you're not a super shopper. No, I, and I also donate things all the time, like cars, you know, car full of things. So, so it is a little sickening to see the amount of things. I also think I'm just tired because I've moved one, one to two times a year, every year for like the last 10 years or something. This is it. I'm knocking on wood. This is it. I can't do it again. I'm over. I'm like one move too many at this point. So, and this is an interesting move. This part is super compelling to me because we're trying to be net zero or energy independent as much as possible. So there's a lot of like piecing together those aspects of, of optimization. Like for example, putting in geothermal, putting in solar, insulating the whole house, getting energy audits where they basically check and see where you're losing energy from the house. You've got to make, it's a hundred year old house, but we need to make it as, as compact and sort of tight as possible, which also creates its own issues. So you have to sort of accommodate for those issues. And then of course there's the rebates and the incentives that are offered by the state and by the federal government. 
And it's about sort of navigating through those things to figure out like what is the best way forward and how to get there. And, you know, since this is unfortunately complicated, part of the goal here is to try to make it easier for people in the future and try to incentivize lower income communities and middle income communities such as my community to be able to make these changes too. We, we can't go rebuilding all the houses, but we can create easy ways for them to become more energy optimized. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of reminds, like, I'm always saying these debates on Twitter about the the importance of individual action and the importance of, of systemic uh, change and trying to promote political change and whatever. And I think we come down, because I'm, you know, planning on doing the same thing. I'm just not there yet, like I will be in a month or two when my house closes. But we come down exactly the same as we do on the animal side, that individual veganism or individually retrofitting your house to be energy efficient are really, really important actions. And they're personally satisfying. But of course, they're not enough. It's just that they are a great starting point for also doing what you were just talking about, some kind of political work or, or social justice work on making it possible for other people to go vegan, uh, to recognize mm -hmm. what's happening to animals, to uh, you know change uh, policy on what's what's happening to animals or to change policy on what's happening to the enormous amount of energy that is flowing out of people's homes. So so I just feel like we come down in the exact same place, but I see so many people um, on social media, which, uh, you know, I try not to go on, but I fail, mm -hmm. just saying, well, it doesn't matter what one person does. Of course, it doesn't matter what one person does. It's a collective. I mean, we, we, we each act individually, but in a collective direction. Right. So I just think it's interesting that we're kind of doing or trying to do or making a move toward doing kind of the same thing when it comes to energy, because yeah, houses have got to be fixed. Of course, a lot of other things have to be fixed too, but everything seems to start at home. There have been, actually, we didn't discuss this before recording, so I don't mean to throw you for a loop here, but there have been some people in my life who are vegan and animal rights activists, you know, who, who share this worldview with us, who have who have basically said to me, oh, that's super privileged of you. And, you know, of course it's privileged of me. I get that. But just so that we're clear, I make a very middle income. I do not have generational wealth. All of the money I have, I made. I've only worked in the animal protection movement and veganism. Uh, so, of course, it's privileged. I have a lot of privileges, uh, uh, you know, insert privileges here. I get that. But the whole point is that I recognize that it's privileged and shouldn't be. And I'm not just doing this to like, improve my life and to be able to live in alignment with my own ethical beliefs of making as little impact as possible, but in a way that can both provide media and policy changes for others so that it becomes easier. So it's like, I am getting a lot of, you know, side eye from people about this, which I find weird. Yeah. To me, it sounds very similar again to the whole vegan issue. Of course, veganism isn't privileged in the sense that there are many, many very basic foods that it's uh, that are not expensive that are vegan. The more healthy foods, in fact, but there are huge aspects of privilege to it. Uh, if you're going to indulge in the more delicious, uh, modern, creative uh, food 
world. Yeah, that's a pretty privileged place to be. And even with the other kinds of food, it's very privileged to be able to take the time to cook, which most of those foods require time to cook and a certain amount of skill. And, and it requires having grocery stores in your area that sell good food. And so there's huge, as, as people are frequently pointing out, there's huge aspects of privilege uh, to veganism. And there's huge aspects of privilege to being able to go net zero. But yeah, like, like as long as you're using that, I recognize that I'm incredibly privileged. Like, are we supposed to pretend we're not mm -hmm. privileged and not do this? Like, and just hide? We're trying to do it for the greater good. Like, we're trying to create new pathways. Like, I, I intend to meet with my legislators. I intend to try and create some media around this so that it can become a topic of conversation and and just really documented. Because what I'm what I'm what I'm sort of rubbing up against is that there are a lot of different. I'm, I'm mixing metaphors here, but there are sort of a lot of different buckets of people <laughs> that are doing like that, that bucket is doing solar, that bucket is doing geothermal, that bucket is, is doing insulation, that bucket is doing an energy audit. And there's very little like, you know, working together in this like hub. You know, I know that I've been reading up on uh, climate friendly cities and climate ha climate safe havens and Rochester, which is where we're all moving is is one of them, which is really great and was by design that we're moving there. Uh, but there's not a lot being done. There's a lot of sort of talk that you know, that there will be these eco initiatives. But I, and, and I, I admittedly don't totally know yet what they are. I'm very curious to find out more about what's being done there and and how other cities can replicate it or how we can replicate the efforts of other cities. I'm picking it up in dribs and drabs here and there. Like I was just reading something about Paris's initiatives to be an eco-friendly city. And it was really cool to see what they were doing. Uh, but I, I have yet to really understand the radical changes being made in the U S in various cities. I'm not saying, Oh, I'm going to create that, but I would like to use the little tiny you know bit of the world that i am in <laughs> to maybe try and make it easier for other people so yeah, well, i'll exactly. keep you all posted i still think yeah. it, everything you're saying is so parallel to veganism so uh there were two things i wanted to chat about you mentioned being a collective or, and that makes me think of one of the things i wanted to mention which is the Sentient Media Writers Collective, which I, I think I brought up briefly, but I want to bring up again because it's been a while. So Sentient Media, of course, is just an incredible organization that is really mainstreaming uh, animal rights stories in the news through a variety of ways, especially regarding getting writers emboldened and, and, and giving them the resources to pitch and put together stories that will ultimately get picked up by major media. And they do incredible work with SEO. Like I, I have noticed it. If you Google like, you know, factory farming or what is factory farming or things like that, you'll see sentient media stories in, on the first page on Google. I mean, that's incredible. We talked to Anna Bradley about it when, when I interviewed her a few months ago on our henhouse. So I recommend that. But uh, the Writers Collective has really been flushed out since then. And I am lucky enough to be a, a a mentor in their writers collective. So it's totally free. And I just wanted to mention it again, in case people are interested in writing and don't really know where to start, you should join the writers collective. It's sentientmedia.org slash writers dash collective. 
And uh, as part of it, I, I have given a few courses. I have taken part in a few courses, I should say. And I'm also doing some Q&As, including one I'm doing today at the time we're recording this on the art of editing and being edited. Uh, and also beyond that, I will be setting up some mentorship sessions one-on-one. -on -one. So if people want to really explore their writing, their writing skills and they want to plug it into helping animals, I couldn't possibly recommend this enough. It's so cool. No one's ever done anything like this for animals. Speaking of writing, I also wanted to take this moment to shamelessly plug the new issue of Veg News magazine. The new issue, I have three articles in, my love column, in my celebrity interview. This month, it's with Spike Mendelson, who was a top contestant on Top Chef and has a bunch of vegan restaurants called Plant, P-L-N-T. And my feature article called The Big Fat Problem with Veganism, which is about anti-fat bias and veganism. And, you know, it gets into a lot of different aspects of it, including just anti-fat bias as a whole and the problems with it and how there's like really horrible medical discrimination for fat people. And I use that word very intentionally uh, and in an effort to try and normalize it and not attach a derogatory meaning to it. But in addition to that, it does talk about the conflation between vegan advocacy messaging and weight loss rhetoric. And, you know, that really just needs to change. <laughs> it talks about the problems with it, how it's alienating, how it's bullshit, how it's rooted in a fat phobic mentality. I had the honor of speaking with some really great activists who have been working in this world for a long time, including, of course, Andy Tabar, who was on our henhouse last week and is so articulate. I could have made the entire article just his quote, as well as Chelsea Lincoln and Jessica Cruz and uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Yami and Dr. Reshma Shah, both of whom have been on our headhouse recently. And actually, Dr. Shah will be a guest for Block Friday next month, I think. Anyway, so I just wanted to give a plug for this. It's getting a lot of discussion online, which is exciting and scary because it's a very personal issue. And I've noticed that a lot of times people, I know this is shocking, internet culture, but people will frequently just make comments without having read the article, which is, you know, internet culture 101, I guess, is how people, how people move forward. But I, I hope people actually read the article before before offering an opinion on on this. And I'm I'm asking for everyone to approach this subject with curiosity, even if you're feeling defensive, especially if you're feeling defensive. Yeah, it, it's a really good article. I highly recommend anybody read it who's interested in this issue. And and I think it's an ongoing problem. It's kind of a vocabulary problem. We don't have enough words to talk about what veganism is. I mean, we end up saying things like ethical veganism or, you know, talking about animals and it just sounds, I don't know, sometimes I feel a little pretentious saying that I'm an ethical vegan. But yeah, we need different words to describe uh, these things. And I hate it when when veganism is, is, whether it's a vocabulary problem or an actual thought problem is conflated with weight loss. They're just, you know, just different different attitudes about food. So it, it's so frustrating and it happens all the time. They, you know, the weightless people even have their like whole foods, plant-based language that they get to use. Like, I think they should give us, give us back veganism, but you know, defining veganism is an ongoing issue that I'm not sure I have all the answers to. So 
this is a very useful step in understanding some of the issues involved in everybody wanting to be vegan for the animals. Doesn't have anything to do with, with size. Right. Well, I, I and, and I do think just if we're coming from a animal liberation standpoint, then it, it sort of widening that and and putting body liberation and fat liberation into that equation to me is a total no brainer. And I also speaking of the bearded vegans and Andy Tabar, hopefully people listening to this were able to listen to our celebratory 600th episode last week where we spoke with Andy Tabar and Paul Seller and I want to also sort of plug a recent episode of theirs where they talk about this very subject. If you want to learn more about anti-fat bias and how it overlaps with veganism, definitely read that article, but also go to the bearded vegans and listen to their recent, uh, their recent discussion about that. Cause it is nobody, nobody really thinks this stuff through better in my opinion than Andy. So anyway, another article that we wanted to chat about, this one was in the New York Times. It's funny, I got sent this article, the title of it is, On This German Farm, Cows Are in Charge, or At Least Co-Equals. And I I didn't read the article yet at, at, that po- at the point where this was sent to me. And so I had the exact reaction that other people have when they are sent my article and don't read it and decide that they know enough to comment. I saw this headline and I rolled my eyes. Because I was like, oh my God, why am I getting this article about another fucking happy cow farm where cows are running around happy and then they're murdered? But what I didn't realize at the time was that it's not about that at all. Do you want to talk about this article? Well, it's actually an article. It's by their German correspondent. There's a couple interesting things about this article. One, that that they have an article about a sanctuary in the New York Times. Like, what? I guess that's happened before. But this is a sanctuary in um, in Germany, in northern Germany, and Hofbutenland. And I may have talked about it before on the podcast because this was a, a sanctuary that was featured in the movie The End of Meat, uh, and and which you know I had a small part in. Uh, I was interviewed in, and it's an extraordinary sanctuary in northern Germany by an extraordinary activist. If you haven't seen The End of Meat, you really should see it just to see her story because she found she started as a very radical activist and um in in laboratory uh work and and still rescues animals from laboratories and she got together with this guy who owned a dairy farm and decided to close it down because he was never really comfortable with it and ended up with 12 cows who didn't get shipped away and they started this this sanctuary it's a beautiful article absolutely nothing uh, snarky in it at all, which, you know, can be unusual for the New York Times. There is a mention of uh, the, the, here, I'll I'll read a quote, talking about the, the male sanctuary owner, quote, but even on an organic farm, he could not avoid what he called the, quote, brutality of how dairy cows are treated to produce milk, removing newly born calves from their mothers who for years are inseminated again and again. So they do mention the fundamental, you cannot fix this flaw in dairy. Like no matter how uh, bucolic and, and lovely people pretend their farms are, the fundamental fact is the business model is to take babies away from mothers who love them. And so uh, they do mention it, but then they go on to talk about other dairy uh, dairy farms in the in the area. And they kind of talk about 
And I, you know, it's just a, a little bit of a, oh yeah, there, there are these small dairy farms in the area and, and they're a little unsettled by this, but you know, it sounds like it's not that different and it's so different. And there they don't, they don't question those other dairy farmers. Well, what about this thing where you take a baby, take the babies away from the mothers? They, they just kind of glide over that as people always do. And the other extraordinary thing about this article is that the woman writing it, who's just the German correspondent for the New York Times, she doesn't seem to know that there's a sanctuary movement. Like, no. I don't know, but she <laughs> seems to think this is the sanctuary. And they came up with this idea and it's really lovely and uh, and it's just great. And look at what they're doing. And it's a wonderful article. And I just think it's so funny that, you know, we think something that's so huge, the sanctuary movement, is doesn't even rise to the surface that there are many sanctuaries around the world everywhere and this is a movement not just a a person and um but these are you know these are kind of small uh small complaints what a great thing that this article was in the new york times mm-hmm. yeah totally and note to self approach things with curiosity just as i'm asking others to so anyway, speaking of approaching things with curiosity, I am so curious about this interview that you did today with Aisha Akhtar. I've been a big fan of hers for a long time. She was on our Hen House years ago. I think it's time we get to the interview. Aisha Akhtar is the president and CEO of the Center for Contemporary Science and a double board certified neurologist and preventative medicine specialist with a background in public health. She has served as deputy director of the U.S. Army Traumatic Brain Injury Program as a commander in the U.S. Public Health Service Commissioned Corps, and as a medical officer at the Food and Drug Administration, most recently in the Office of Counterterrorism and Emerging Threats. Aisha is also a fellow of the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics, and in addition to numerous articles, is the author of the two books, Our Symphony with Animals and Animals and Public Health. She will be joining Marianne right after this. Jasmine here. We're so excited to announce the upcoming release of the groundbreaking new book, Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation, published by Lantern Books and Media. Inspired by Encompass's racial equity trainings, this collection of essays was written by farmed animal protection leaders, myself included, who are committed to exploring and prioritizing racial equity as we work to create a more effective and just animal protection movement. We wish to document our stories and processes in an exploratory space from which we can grow and use our words to hold ourselves and our peers accountable, ultimately creating new paths forward. I'm lucky enough to be the editor of the book. The only way to be an effective animal activist is to prioritize anti-racism within our advocacy. This essay collection will provide a new, necessary way forward. Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation is new as of September 2021 and is a collaboration between Our Hen House, Encompass, Sentient Media, and Lantern Books and Media. And we've got even more exciting news. Our Hen House is honored to roll out an audio series of the book, launching this October 2021. Narrated by the essay authors themselves, the four-part series will air every Thursday throughout October. This will be in addition to our regular podcast schedule, of course. 
We cannot wait to share it with you. To find out more about the book and to pre-order it, visit encompassmovement.org slash book. That's encompassmovement.org slash book. Welcome to our hen house, Aisha. Thanks for having me, Marion. Welcome back, I guess, since you've been on before. But now you're on, before you've been on two times because you wrote books and they were both terrific and we both had great conversations about them. But now it's something totally different. You've totally changed your life. You're doing an entirely new thing and it's very, very exciting. We're excited to hear about it. And since it's really pretty new, I imagine a lot of our listeners are not yet familiar with it, the Center for Contemporary Sciences. So can you just start out maybe by giving us your elevator speech, the real quick overview of what this is? Right. So we um, launched in May of 2020. So we're just over a year old, but we're a new nonprofit organization. The only one of its kind, definitely in the United States, if not in the world, in which we are basically catalyzing the replacement of animal testing. The reason why we're, we're kind of unique is one is that we're solely focusing on animal testing as an issue, as opposed to several different issues at one time. And two, we are a predominantly we're a scientific organization. Our efforts are scientific-based. And then three, we're really working on building bridges with institutions, academic institutions, governmental agencies, funders, investors, researchers, and, and so many different partners, industry, to really catalyze a shift towards research methods that are not just those that are alternatives to animal testing, but really are actually much better than animal testing or have the potential to be much better. We think that's the, really the, the way we're going to create a real shift in this is not just one-on-one replacement of animal testing with something that's non-animal, but replacing animal testing with more effective testing methods. And I think that's the key to really create a real shift in how biomedical research is conducted to showcasing how human health is improved with new testing methods that are based on human biology. So when you talk about animal testing, are you talking about like all of the, the whole gamut of what we do to animals from product testing to medical research to psychological research, the whole, or are you focusing on a specific area? Yeah, so the short answer is, in general, there's nothing that is off the board when we're talking about animal experimentation. But for the second um, question, our priority really is to work especially on basic biomedical research and disease-oriented research. So there's been a lot of uh, effort underway in like toxicity uh, work, and that's the toxicity world is slowly already moving towards non-animal testing, more effective human-based testing methods, but there's still some work needed to be done in that area. So we're still working in that area. But our focus is really on where most of the animals are being used in research. And this is basic biomedical research, academic-oriented research, disease-oriented research, and that also leads up to pharmaceutical development. Those two areas are very much tied together, and there hasn't uh, to date been as much of an effort in that area. So that is where the bulk of um, animals are used? I I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, I, I know most people aren't aware of that. So you know, household products and cosmetics, you know, comparatively, there are very few animals being used in those product testing now throughout the world. 
and even toxicity testing, which, which is what we think of when we think of many chemical agents and pharmaceutical drug development. Those are all make up the estimates, the best estimates we have, because there's very little transparency in the United States about this, but this is based on estimates in the UK that has more transparency. And we suspect that it mirrors what's happening here is that most of the animal use is actually in what's called academic basic biomedical research. This is the research that institutes like the National Institutes of Health predominantly fund. And that research does tie into the pharmaceutical industry. So we're, we're kind of really focusing on that area the most. And there's a good reason to believe that because if we look at human diseases, there's no approved drug for most of the diseases that afflict us. Um, and if we were um, especially looking at some certain um, neurological diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, and there's been a lot of basic research creating what's called animal models of Parkinson's disease, animal models of Alzheimer's disease, animal models of multiple sclerosis and so on. And that's all put into the basic research category. And despite the immense suffering that the animals have experienced, despite the fact that our tax dollars have gone towards funding these types of research, despite all the time and effort, we don't really have much to show in those areas. We, you know, we just had a new Alzheimer's drug approved, but if you've re read the news, there's a lot of controversy that doesn't really do much good. And that's the same with the few other Alzheimer's drugs that have been approved. They don't really move the marker. At best, they may prolong cognitive decline by a few months. So they haven't been very good. You talked a lot about basic research. And, you know, I don't know a whole lot about the research world, but one of the things that I always hear in the arguments about research on animals is that because basic research isn't targeted at particular, you know, it's it's just research and we never know what we're going to find. So we can't say that animal research isn't useful in these areas or that it shouldn't be done because, because it's somewhat serendipitous. Is that a good characterization of the kind of arguments in favor of it? And, and how do you respond to it if it is? There's some, some truth to that. But the thing is we have to, to always keep in mind is that no matter what, the, even the basic research, you know, we fund it. We allow our tax dollars to be used for it with the goal in mind that it will likely lead to human benefit. Now, how long that can take, you know, that's up in the air. But we have seen systematic reviews in the scientific literature has shown again and again that that is not working. And so, yes, there is some serendipity, but it has to be smart it has to be serendipity based on smart research, right? So we still want to make sure that we are doing the smartest type of research we can do, the research that's most likely to give us the information, the answers we need. So when we're looking at Parkinson's, trying to understand Parkinson's disease, or looking at trying to understand how a certain type of cancer develops, we need the best testing methods available. We need to, and so what that gets to is that we need to get back to studying human biology. We've uh, kind of gotten away from studying human diseases. We instead have been creating artificial models in animals. We've artificially created diseases in animals that do not replicate 
the human disease. They're very poor at replicating what we actually see in humans. They don't replicate the underlying causes of these diseases in humans. They don't replicate the full symptoms or even the severity of symptoms. They're poor models. And so because of that, we really need to move away. When my money is being used to fund research, I expect it to be going towards the research that's going to offer the potential to be the most fruitful. There is always a value. We always have to think about a value place on the research we conduct because medical research, you know, science cannot exist in an ethical vacuum. So there always has to be an ethical question placed on and a value placed on the type of research and science that we conduct and we fund. And in the case of medical research, the ethical questions are, one, does it harm animals? Does it cause suffering in animals? And of course, animal experimentation, we know it causes significant suffering in animals. And two, does it actually effectively lead to decreasing suffering in humans? And the second answer is no. The the answer to that question is also in the negative in the sense that we now know scientific evidence has shown that it animal research is not leading to even indirectly leading to the breakthroughs that we're we expect it to yeah that makes total sense you know that uh, i always find countering arguments on this topic so difficult because i feel like well i'm not a scientist what do i know but it does seem like there's long been an argument that well whatever we do is useful because it's science and adds to knowledge but that doesn't make any sense i mean like we need knowledge it's going to be useful not just any old knowledge about anything it's not that serendipitous so yeah i i I really like that explanation so is there any animal research that is still producing good results you know at at the moment that you know you're just not going to go near one one area i've heard i've heard of in the past is spinal cord injuries well spinal cord injuries being a neurologist i can tell you we have nothing to treat spinal cord injury so Mm -hmm. i don't know who's making that claim yeah, I kind of don't um, know either. And I might have made yeah. it up. I don't know. So I just grabbed it out of the ether. So uh, yeah, I won't blame anybody. Yeah. We have nothing to treat spinal cord injury. We have things to help with some of the symptoms that result from spinal cord injury, but we don't have anything to treat the underlying disease. We don't have anything to reverse spinal cord injury. And we don't have anything to, to treat head injuries either. Before I launched CCS, I was the deputy director of the Army's Traumatic Brain Injury Program. And, you know, we were. It was because head injury is a major issue now with soldiers, not just U.S. soldiers, but soldiers throughout the world. And they're bashing animals' heads in to try to understand, just as they were doing with bashing and paralyzing animals and severing their spinal cords to try to understand spinal cord injury. They're doing similar types of experiments to try to come up with good treatments for head injuries, and we don't have anything. So the... the <laughs> Um, so the, the answer is, you know, how long do we continue, continue going down the a line of investigation that has not yielded effective results? Um, on the more general question, is there any animal research that is still producing good results? Oh, I can't answer that. So, I mean, what I can well, say Well, you don't have is, to really, in, even given what you are doing. It's not that. It's just that you would have to... Uh, we would have to honestly look at each animal testing on a case by case basis. And I, you know, and so that I don't think anyone has done that, to be honest. What we do know and what we need to be asking ourselves is does animal research as a whole 
effectively inform human health. And so as a whole, the systematic reviews, the scientific studies are showing that it is very unreliable in predicting human outcomes and in helping us understand human biology in a way that leads to effective treatments. And so when I talk about animal testing, the need to move away from animal testing, it's not to say that animal experimentation has never you know, produced answers, has never given information that's been valuable, because of course I can't say that, that that would be an erroneous claim. What I'm asking today is, is it today the most effective way, the most reliable way to find the treatments we need? And we are showing, and the scientific community is increasingly saying, no, it is not the most effective way. So my voice is now uh, one of a much larger growing conglomerate of voices coming from the scientific community, coming from the pharmaceutical industry, coming from many research institutions that are saying, we need to move away from animal testing, not Mm -hmm. out of ethical concern for animals, but because of ethical concerns for humans. There is a growing appreciation that whatever role animal testing may have played in the past, it is no longer or not the most effective way to be studying human biology today. Yeah, and I definitely want to get into what's going on in the industry. But you had mentioned before human-based tech. Oh, I mean, really what you're doing is not so much being just being against animal testing. It's being for other kinds of technologies, which I think you referred to as human-based. Can you explain to us a little bit more what that means? Yeah, so, and, and you're right about that. That's really our primary way of, move, of changing the marker is really to help create in a sense, to help increase funding, help support those companies, help support the researchers who are creating new testing methods that can actually offer to be much more beneficial than animal testing. So these are testing methods that are based on human biology. So when we're talking about these, these are some of these testing methods have been developed in the past 10 to 15 years, and they're really quite remarkable. One is 3D printers, bioprinters now are being used to create mini organs, small human organs that can be used to study diseases, can be used to study underlying mechanisms in those organs and study and be used for pharmaceutical uh, development as well. Another that's really garnered a lot of um, great enthusiasm over the last few years is what's called human organs on a chip. Basically, what you're doing is you're distilling a human organ to its micro components onto a small plastic chip. It looks like a, you know, an old fashioned computer chip. And at the micro level is where everything happens, right? It's where disease is, it's how diseases manifest is how a drug will work. Or if there's going to be a toxic effect, that's where it's going to occur. And so for example, a human lung on a chip basically is you've captured human lung tissues so, and, and it's key to say these are human tissues. That's why these testing methods can be so, so beneficial. These are human tissues that you basically capture onto a microchip. And the technology has allowed for a 3D reconstruction of not only the architecture, but a great deal of function of a major unit of a human lung. So a human lung on a chip can actually breathe like a human lung and will recapitulate many of the functions that you would see in a full living lung. And so we now have a human lung on a chip, a human mini brain on a chip, a human gut on a chip, kidney, liver, you name it. And now 
many of these organs are being connected through a um, what's called tissue dynamics. Uh, it's a way of connecting these tissues through a way that allows for, let's say, nutrients to come into the tissues and for waste products to, to leave these tissues and for a passageway for let's say you're trusting a new drug for it to kind of work its way through the different organs connected on an organ on a chip. So you are actually creating a human body on a chip, which is really wonderful. Now, I will say, by no means am I saying that these methods are perfect and no one method is ever going to give us all the answers we need. So there's a real need to continually improve these methods and refine them and make them better and better. And there's a need to use as many different testing options as possible. But the caveat is they have to be based on human biology. We now know there is just too many subtle differences in the genetics, the genetic expression, the microphysiology, pathophysiology, you name it between species. So we really need to get back to using human tissues, human cells, human organs, human data to really understand what is going on in the human body. So who are your major opponents? Who really wants to keep doing animal research and is is fighting for that? Well, there's a lot of lobbying groups and um, industry pro-animal research groups that have been formed specifically with the sole purpose of combating any effort that will either allow for more protections for animals used in research or that could minimize the use of animals in research in any way. So those groups are always there. They're, uh, I'll say they're pretty nasty, and I've been targets of, of those groups in the past. There are also those who are very much entrenched in the world of using animals in research, and these are those, the career scientists, who have basically built their careers of using animals in experimentation. They've had publications, they get funding based on this. And, you know, as you as you can imagine, it's very difficult to change the minds of folks who are very much wedded that, you know, their careers have been built using a certain type of procedure or a certain methodology and that these are the folks. And so when I was working at the Food and Drug Administration, it's a weird dynamic. So on one hand, they recognize that animal testing is not very effective in uh, predicting human outcomes. We now know that 90 to 95% of drugs and vaccines that pass animal tests, in other words, that are found safe and effective in animals, end up failing in clinical trials. That most of them fail because they're unsafe or ineffective in humans. So right there, we have a 90 to 95% failure rate from animal testing, right? And so the FDA acknowledges this to a large degree, and those are their statistics. But at the same time, they keep asking for animal testing in large part because that's what they know. That's what they have been trained in. And that's what they still hold on to the belief that, you know, yes, we need new testing methods, but we are uncomfortable in fully moving away from animal testing. So governmental agencies like the FDA, regulatory agency like the FDA, the National Institutes of Health, which is the largest single funder in the United States of medical research and animal research, they've not been very open to moving away from animal testing. Um, So those are the main folks that we're working against. But as I mentioned before, there is a growing momentum that is happening, and it is happening. 
growing momentum coming out from the research community, especially um, newer researchers, newer scientists who are not yet wedded to using animals and who are uh, open-minded and able to critically review the impact animal testing has had versus the potential for other research methods. And they're the ones, and just so many institutions now are saying, we really need to move away from animal testing. So we're not at that tipping point yet where we will see the majority of scientists saying we need to move away from animal testing, but that is going to happen. And at CCS, our role is to help that happen at a faster rate. So one of your, I mean, actually your major purpose in in existing is to help the people who are moving in the right direction and maybe educate the people who are not uh, catching up quickly. Is, Is that right? So I will say that I, I think trying to convince those who are very much entrenched, you know, I, I'm not really going to spend a lot of time on that, that we're just going to be hitting our heads against the wall. So we are working with those who are open to change and we are willing to work on changing the system. And there are a lot of people, there are a lot of scientists, there are a lot of researchers, there are people within governmental agencies who are that. And so those are those are the groups that we're predominantly working with. And our role is to help educate scientists who are using animals, but are open to considering other testing methods to educate them about these new testing methods and how they can be used instead of animal testing in those scientists' line of work. We want to build the next generation of scientists, so create academic curriculum that's integrated into academic students' um, um, programs so that the next generation of biomedical students come out having trained in human-based testing methods and not so trained in animal testing so that they're going to be the, you know working on developing more and creating even better testing methods that are based on human biology. And they will know how to use these tools and will continue to use these tools in their line of work. And we want to help drive investment. So we're, we're, we work with several investment groups to connect them with the companies that are creating the testing methods that are based on human biology. And of course, we're working on um, policy changes to open the door to allow for more innovation and eventually more funding, governmental funding, towards these other types of testing methods. Currently, governmental funding is still slanted towards animal research, and we want to switch that. Is that a legislative project, or is it mostly lobbying within agencies? And how do you start moving that money in a different direction? So that will be a longer term process. And that's going to be as far as moving money, if we're talking about NIH, for example, that's probably going to be a legislative effort because I don't see a lot of movement within NIH in that direction. And it, they're not they're not taking the, the leadership role in, in moving in that direction. So they're going to have to be um, pushed by Congress in that direction. Now, there is uh, a bill that's been introduced in Congress. It's called the FDA Modernization Act, which I've been supporting, and I've been talking with congressional staffers in support of this bill. And basically what this bill would do would, it's, it's such a small change, but basically it changes one word in FDA's requirements. So it changes the word animal to non-clinical. And what it does is right now, so right now, the FDA can claim that their authority forces them to ask for animal testing. 
So with this new bill, what it would do is update that FDA authority that was um, enacted, I think it was 1938, to basically expand the language. So by changing animal to non-clinical, it allows the FDA to ask for, if they want to continue asking for animal testing, they can, but it also allows them for now asking for other much more predictive testing methods instead of animal testing. And it also allows for pharmaceutical companies to submit data based on what they think is the most effective testing method. So if they still think it's animal testing, they can still submit data based on animal testing. But if they think that this human organs on a chip is a better way to showcase the the efficacy and the, the safety of their drug, then they can submit data based on that. It's a very small change, but I I would say it's a very practical legislation because I think if we try to go further, when there's just it it won't pass. But this is a change that I can't imagine anyone having an issue with. It doesn't restrict anything; it just allows for more options. Yeah, that seems like a great legislative strategy. What about you've mentioned that, that pharmaceutical companies may be interested in this? And of course, when you look, I'm, it's hard not to compare this to the growth of alt meat, whether plant based or cell based. And the thing that took that from, you know, a vague idea, which we all remember like just a few years ago, to where it is now is, of course, uh, money. Money changes everything. And big money started to get interested. Even the big meat companies started to get interested. Is that what's going to happen here? That is what's going to happen here eventually, and that's what we're trying to drive at CCS. It's a little bit of a different pathway because, of course, meat goes directly to the people, you know, to the, the average person, right? It's a, it's a consumer-driven market in that sense. There are some nuances and, uh, I would say, barriers in place with the animal research sector. First, you have regulatory agencies. If they keep dragging their feet and if they keep insisting on animal testing, well, that's what the pharmaceutical companies are going to do. They don't want to rock the boat. They want their product out on the market. So if the FDA is insisting on animal testing, that's what the pharmaceutical companies will do. And of course, you know, there's kind of barriers like that that make it a little bit of a different market because these aren't products, you know, a, a human organ on a chip is not something that you and I would buy, right? And that we can vote with our our dollars when we go to the grocery store in a way, right? Support directly. This is a, a little bit more of an indirect path, but something similar like that is going to happen in this in this field, but it's just a matter of when. Yeah, it almost seemed like there are both pluses and minuses to it not being a consumer product. You know, you have to talk consumers into something. Whereas I can see this sort of thing, the right people get on board and the money is there. It would just happen. And what what are the motivations for pharmaceutical companies or anybody else, research institutions? What are the motivations for wanting to get on board? Is it going to be cheaper for them? Is it going to be more effective? Or do they just want to broaden their their ability to to have different scientific methods? What's pushing this? Probably money. Um, uh, yeah, money. No, so for pharmaceutical companies, first of all, they are having such a high failure rate. I mean, 90 to 95%. On average, it takes anywhere between $1 to $6 billion investment per new drug candidate that they move into the clinical trial phase for 90 to 95% of them to fail. And the timeline is usually between 10 to 15 years. That's a lot of investment that pharmaceutical companies have invested 
not just in animal testing, but but that definitely includes animal testing as a major part of this process. So that's a high failure rate. So there's an incentive for them to have a more successful rate of drug approval process, right? And so the more options that are available to them, the more they can select which options they think are going to improve their success rate. And so these other types of testing methods are cheaper to use. So when you think about animal research, you're thinking, okay, not only do they have to buy the animals, uh, usually buying them from breeders, or in the case of non-human primates, they're often imported into the United States from other countries. So if you're a pharmaceutical agent, a company using animals, you have to buy these animals. Then you have to provide for housing. You have to pay for all the the materials, uh, the caging and everything else that goes into housing them. For you have to pay for all the equipment that's used to experiment on them and kill them and deal with their waste and things like that and to feed them while you're, you know, conceivably while they're still alive and, and to, to care for them to some degree. They still have to have veterinarians and, and caretakers overseeing them. That costs a lot of money. And animal testing can take many years for one type of test to be done. On the other hand, Human organs on a chip, for example, you can run a test through a human organs on a chip in, in potentially in a matter of hours. So you can do a lot of testing a lot more quickly and a lot more cheaply using these other types of human biology-based testing methods. But for a pharmaceutical company who has never used these other types of testing methods, for example, and I don't know if there are any that fit that criteria, but let's say there are some that have not used human organs on a chip and instead use animal testing. Of course, there will be an initial cost for them to switch over, right? Because then they, they will have to train on these new testing methods. They'll have to repurpose their laboratories for the, these new testing methods. So there would be an initial cost for them, but the long-term cost will definitely be uh, beneficial for them. So there's been a lot of attention on the role of animals in the development of the COVID vaccines. How do you address that issue? Do you think it could have been done without the use of animals and it should have been done without the use of animals? Uh, It could have and it should have, that's for sure. (laughs) With the COVID vaccine, one of the interesting things about it is that initially when they were trying to find what they call the right animal model, meaning another species that either naturally will contract the virus or and or show the symptoms that humans do they haven't they they weren't able to and there is still no animal that that does that that does both of those things so there is no right animal model and that actually delayed the vaccine process development process for at least by several months and when you're talking about an emergency that's a, a good amount of time that was delayed because of this process So that shows that obviously animal testing can impede progress and impede the necessary work that needs to be done to develop a a vaccine. Now, in this process also, because there was such a high urgency to develop vaccines very quickly, a lot of the traditional animal testing, which is normally conducted for vaccine development, was either bypassed altogether or were allowed to be conducted side by side with the human clinical trials. So what that means is that, I mean, the whole purpose of why animal testing is done is it's supposed to be done before human testing, 
right? It's supposed to be done to, to, you know, because we expect it to predict the safety and effectiveness of what we're going to see in humans. Of course, we now know that that's certainly not the case. It's the, it's very ineffective in predicting human outcomes, but even from a regulatory perspective, you know, it really begs the question, why are we doing animal studies side by side when we're already at human testing? I mean, human biology is the gold standard. If we're at the gold standard of testing, why are we doing something that's subpar? Why do we continue to do animal testing? So I think that in many ways that really showcase that we don't need animal testing in the way that people thought we did right? Because either they were bypassed or they were conducted not in the way that they normally would be, which would be to, you know, before, before human testing. So this really highlighted, um, I think, the need and really the opportunity for doing away with a lot of animal testing, if not eventually all animal testing in, in this area. The other result from the pandemic, so there have been two other results. One is that of course, a lot of vivisection pro-animal testing groups have exploited the pandemic to say that we need more animals and we need more funding for animal experimentation. And there was a, there's been a concerted effort on the part of experimenters who experiment on non-human primates to do this. So they've been exploiting people's fears about the pandemic to really call for more of our tax dollars to go towards bringing more monkeys into the United States and actually creating what they're calling a monkey stockpile, a non-human primate stockpile, and for more funding towards experimentation on, on, these, on these animals. The third thing, the third result has been that because of the urgency and the need for the most effective and the speediest testing methods to develop vaccines, there has been a real uptake in the use of a lot of these innovative testing methods that are based on human biology, like the ones I've been talking about. So what that means is that more pharmaceutical companies, more researchers have now used these new testing methods and are now comfortable with these testing methods. They've had experience with these testing methods. And I suspect that even given the efforts by the pro non-human primate experimentation groups, in the long run, we're going to see a decrease in animal testing as a result of the COVID-19 experience. And we're going to see an increase in use of more human biology-based testing methods. I, I sure hope you're right. And that would be like one tiny little silver lining to this nightmare if ultimately it did it, it seems like a race is on between these methods and and the pandemic and the responses to it have just raised the stakes dramatically in that race so how can people find out i mean you you will be one of the people fighting i'm sure on the side of getting policies and getting institutions to adopt their own policies moving towards these uh, non-animal methods how can people find out in more detail about what you're doing you can always visit our website. It's uh, www.contemporarysciences.org or Center for Contemporary Sciences. You know, you can follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. The only thing we're not on is TikTok. <laughs> I don't know how we, how we <laughs> use TikTok actually for our work, but if there is a way, we'll find it. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, support our posts, of course, because the more eyes on it, the more 
further eyes will get on on our social media posts. If you'd like to support us, we and and donate to our organization to help us in our efforts financially. Of course, we would welcome that by all means. And if you're a scientist, if any of you are biomedical scientists or a student going into the field and you'd like to work with us and collaborate with us, partner with us, we would love to hear from you. All right. I hope there are some scientists out there listening. That, this was really, really enlightening, Aisha. Thank you so much for doing it. I'm excited to hear about what's going on. Thank you so much. And you're most welcome. Hi, friends. Jasmine here with some news and some gratitude for you. I hope you've been enjoying the Our Hen House podcast lately. And for those of you in the flock, I hope you've been enjoying your added weekly bonus material and other flock perks. In the spirit of sharing things we're learning, I wanted to let you know about my new newsletter. It's called Jasmine's Jargon, and it's an upfront look at the many moving parts of my life as they relate to activism, veganism, writing, time management, and how I do my best to stay calm, or to try to stay calm. Each newsletter offers ideas, resources, and tools to help anyone who's interested in getting a bit more organized and focused do just that. I also, of course, cover topics relating to our hen house quite often, including what I'm learning from guests and cue the man behind the curtain, what tools we're using, everything from editing to communication, to keep our nonprofit thriving and our podcast thought-provoking and relevant. Since I also wear a few other hats in the vegan world and beyond, I also include the down low about which projects inspire, motivate, and challenge my efforts to change the world for animals. If you'd like to join, and I hope you would like to join, you can sign up for free at jasminesinger.substack.com. And there's no E on Jasmine. So it's J-A-S-M-I-N-S-I-N-G-E-R dot substack dot com. Thank you so much for being here on this journey with me and for listening to the Our Hen House podcast and the Animal Law podcast. We couldn't do what we do without you, our community. And for that, we are so beyond grateful. Anxiety surprising. Our first article is from Drovers.com. It's by Hannah Thompson Weeman, one of my favorites. Nutrition, the next activist battleground, which is kind of a weird title because I feel like we talk about nutrition a lot. But uh, she recently had some conversations at the Virtual Stakeholders Summit of the Animal Ag Alliance. And they talked about what are opportunities in the future to to fight against the obstacles to animal agriculture, which includes animal rights activism. And one of the things that came up was uh, the need to better articulate the unique nutritional value of meat, poultry, dairy, and eggs. Well, good luck with that. Uh, and then she quotes uh, some some nutritionist. My nutrition classes taught me that animal source foods supply High-quality protein and bioavailable vitamin A, vitamin D3, vitamin B12, iron, iodine, zinc, calcium, folic acid, and key essential fatty acids, etc. That can be locally difficult to attain in adequate quantities from plant source foods alone. Well, my uh, nutrition class, well, I didn't take any nutrition classes, but I'm pretty damn sure, having been vegan for, for a gazillion years, that you can get all those things from plants. 
And except for B12, of course, which you do have to supplement, but you know, they supplement the animals too. And so we're all getting our B12 from supplements and plus a lot more, uh, more vitamins and a full array of vitamins and minerals. And you don't have to package it with uh, animal fat and horrifying uh, other things. So yeah, not such a good argument. But you know, Hannah thinks it is, and she thinks it's really important because of this recent study. And according to her, this recent study stated that after being shown content intended to make them feel guilty about meat, participants still chose to consume meals with meat. They just chose healthier meal options, grilled versus fried chicken, for example. Like, what? Uh, people are so people are such idiots, but I think this is a really good study for us to be paying attention to. She goes on to say, one of the study's authors explained, quote, research shows that when our moral standards and self-serving desires come into conflict, our self-interest often wins. Yeah, no shit, I knew that. She goes on, as we found, when people feel guilty over animal welfare issues, they don't tend to avoid meat. Instead, they go with a healthier option to justify their lifestyle. Do you believe that? Yeah, I guess you do believe it because... Like people are just so fucked up. But uh, so, all right. So when people find out that animals are suffering horribly, they decide to make healthier choices and still eat meat. This is information that it is is useful to have because it does really mean that making those health arguments, which some of us, you know, like uh, go crazy when it's all about the health, health, health. But they are apparently important, not just in and of themselves, but in companionship with the animal welfare issues. Uh, Because according to this study, again, messages from those hoping to curb meat consumption, which would be me, should simultaneously induce guilt by highlighting animals' human-like feelings and and counteract popular beliefs about meat's nutritional value. Hannah is sure that they're going to be seeing activist groups accept that challenge, I imagine. And so they need to do the same. Fortunately for us, we have the truth on our side. That always helps, though. Well, actually, it doesn't always help, does it? All right, this this article is hilarious, and it's about Bruce Friedrich. It's from the Center for Consumer Freedom. Food magazine corrects headline after referring to fake meat radical as, quote, scientist. Uh, and this is <laughs> apparently Eating Well, which is a food magazine, wrote some article about about Bruce, and uh, they called it Meet the Scientists Behind the Plant-Based Meat Movement. And so uh, this article goes on to say, but Friedrich isn't a scientist at all, not even a mad one. In fact, he's an animal rights radical who has been arrested several times. He's also, you know, a lawyer, and he doesn't pretend to be a scientist. He employs loads of scientists. The Good Food Institute has lots of scientists working for it. He, uh, well, I'm not sure there's an official definition of what a scientist is, but I don't think Bruce would um, would claim uh, that title. So they go through all these rests that Bruce went through in his in his prior days as a, as a PETA activist, and some of the things he said, which you know I won't go into, because now he's got a totally different persona, and he's gotten his law degree, and he's gotten an enormously enormously successful organization under his belt, and he's moving forward. But you know they had to change. The title, so Eating Well changed it from scientist to innovator. (laughs) Oh my God, that's so important. Uh, Well, he thinks, this article thinks it is. There's not much meat on the bones there either. It's not like Friedrich came up with how to make fake meat. 
He just advocates for it. A better title would be Goop Shell. <laughs> oh, what would I do without the Center for Consumer Freedom? All right, this final, uh, this is actually a great rising anxiety. This was sent to me from the UK by Joe Wills on Twitter, and I just love it. There's a whole speech. This speech was by, uh, you know, you just got to love the British. It was uh, by, it was in um, the House of Lords, as they call it. And I, I did watch the entire speech and uh, there were about three people in the audience, but, you know, he went on and on. He is uh, known as Lord Moylan, the Earl of Caithness, Lord Hamilton of Epsom. <laughs> I feel like I'm reading a romance novel. Um, anyway, so uh, he gave this speech about, uh, as, as Joe put it, how the new animal sentience bill could be a slippery slope not only to veganism, but also to, quote, behavior which respects and prevents harm to any sentient creature. <laughs> well, that would be terrible. So this bill is, is, it's new, but it's replacing something old because the, you know, the EU has this, um, I don't know whether it's a law or a policy, I guess it's a law, that says, uh, recognizes animals as sentient creatures, which, you know, I, I love it when lawmakers think that they can, uh, that they can rule what reality is. <laughs> animals, or most animals, just are sentient creatures. You don't need a law for it. But, but you know, it's good to have a law, I guess. It doesn't seem to have made a whole lot of difference in changing the fact that uh, what they do to them. But so since the UK left the EU, they are now replacing it with their own law, recognizing that animals are sentient creatures. And there's actually been quite a bit of play about it because there's going to be a committee. It's going to set up a committee to... Uh, judge the sentience of various types of creatures in there. They were originally going to be just including vertebrates, and now I think they're including invertebrates. And, for, you know, forgive me if you know a lot about this law, and I'm not saying it all correctly. But so Lord Moylan, the Earl of Caithness, Lord Hamilton of Epsom, proposed uh, in, in, in his, after his speech, he has a proposal. One of them is that at least 50% of the committee, that's the committee deciding who's sentient and who's not, I guess they call it the God Committee, I don't know, must have recent commercial experience of, quote, A, animal husbandry, B, livestock farming, C, the management of abattoirs, or D, the management of game and fishing stocks. <laughs> yeah, as Joe put it, he's proposing that the hen house guarding committee should be staffed by at least 50% foxes, which, you know, isn't entirely fair to foxes, but, you know, it is kind of fair. We'll see how that goes. Unbelievable. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, you can support us by joining the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple Podcasts, or you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan. That's me. And to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Jocelyn Martinez for her work doing research and for Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven for his work editing. Thanks to Lori Johnston of Two Trick Pony for her graphic design services. 
We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook page on Tuesday for your bonus content. Thanks so much for tuning in and for changing the world for animals.